Thank you all. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here today uh, for several reasons. Um, as uh, you might imagine, since I've um, taken over as president of the Richmond Fed, I've had occasion to give a number of speeches and talks around our district, the Fifth Federal Reserve District. And this is the first time, though, I've, I've had the chance to speak in Washington. Um, the conventional wisdom is that the Board of Governors keeps that turf to itself, but they've, they've let me come in for the day. I'm very grateful for that. Um, it's also the first time, and you know, you, imagine, you might imagine I've given a lot of speeches after meals, and down in Charlotte and South Carolina. This is the first, me this is the first time it's been Chinese food that I've given a speech after. But you probably have, all your speakers probably say something else to Chinese food. It's also a pleasure in part because the economic outlook is fairly encouraging right now. Um, growth is on a solid footing. Uh, despite uh, this year's run-up in energy prices and the disruptions of the devastating hurricane season, after a brief pause this fall, employment is expanding again at a healthy pace. Consumer spending continues to grow briskly, and business investment spending is robust right now. Now, granted, housing activity seems to be softening. I'll talk a little more about this later. And at least some potential price level pressures remain. Uh, so it might be too soon to break out the eggnog. Uh, but inflation expectations remain contained, and we at the Fed are well positioned to resist inflation pressures should uh, the need emerge. So all in all, it's quite a good outlook. In fact, in the spirit of the holiday season, I'm tempted to say I bring you tidings of comfort and joy. But I'm afraid you might think that uh, that was uncharacteristically exuberant for a central banker. Um, so I'll just let me just say the tidings appear to be improving at a measured pace. <laughs> in my remarks here today, um, I'll talk in a little more detail about the economic outlook and then talk about monetary policy. And as always, my, my remarks reflect my own views and not necessarily those of colleagues in the Federal Reserve System. The really striking thing about the current outlook is the extent to which general economic activity and uh, consumer spending in particular has rebounded from the shock of the hurricane season. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, fears were widespread uh, that consumers might pull back sharply on spending, both in response to sharply higher retail gasoline prices uh, and out of a general sense of heightened anxiety about potential fallout from the storm damage. Survey measures of consumer confidence, which plummeted in September, seemed to bolster this view. But the effect of the storms on consumer outlays have turned out to be far more limited than expected, uh, exemplifying the off-sided resilience of the U.S. economy. Apart from auto sales, which slid following the expiration of the summer's employee discount promotions, Retail sales have held up well, and overall consumer spending has continued to advance. And on the whole, holiday spending appears to be coming in stronger than many feared uh, a month or two ago. I'll use this occasion to put in a plug for the permanent income model. I'd argue that this episode illustrates quite well how consumption expenditures are governed predominantly by households' assessment of their own future income prospects, rather than by any general economic nervousness, despite how they respond to telephone pollsters. And with healthy income growth ahead and reasonably strong overall job market, the outlook for consumer spending thus looks good to me. Housing market activity has been very strong over the last several years. The historically low level of inflation-adjusted mortgage rates uh, explains much of that strength, obviously. 
The fall in interest rates that began in early in 2001 stimulated spending in interest rate se sec sensitive sectors like uh, housing and durable goods and partially offset the then emerging weakness in business investment spending. As the latter has recovered in the last two years and real interest rates have had to rise as a consequence, a gradual handoff from housing investment uh, has been expected, but that handoff is yet to occur. If you look at the ratio of business to residential investment outlays, it fell from around two and three quarters in 2000 to about one and three quarters last year. Not a popular ratio, but an interesting one. And it's been fairly constant since then. Instead, the combination of low inflation-adjusted interest rates and sustained real income gains have continued to provide a strong stimulus to housing demand. In recent months, uh, we at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond and others, I understand, around the system have received widespread anecdotal reports of what one informant of ours called, quote, a return to normalcy, unquote, in several housing markets in our district. The multiple first-day bids and final sales at above asking prices uh, that we used to see were, were <clears throat> seem to have become less common um, in those hot markets in our district. And in some markets, the amount of time a home stays on the market uh, has increased to more typical levels. At the same time, though, aggregate measures of housing activity have so far shown only a limited pullback uh, from their peaks, and they remain at historically high levels. This is shown again in Tuesday's uh, housing starts release for November. Uh, so I'm tempted to paraphrase Solo and say the slowdown in housing market is visible everywhere but in the data. <laughs> Still, mortgage rates are likely to stay somewhat above their recent lows in the coming year, and so I'd expect housing price appreciation to flatten out next year and for aggregate residential investment to stop growing or perhaps even decline. In contrast, the fundamentals for business investment in equipment and software look quite sound. Business output is expanding steadily, and real funding costs are relatively low, both because inflation-adjusted risk-free rates are low and because in corporate risk spreads are relatively narrow right now. Evidently, there has been a sufficient flow of opportunities to deploy new capital, capital profitably. Business investment in equipment and software has grown at over 11% in real terms since the first quarter of 2003 and it appears poised to grow at rates almost that strong next year. Capital formation, particularly investment in information and communications technologies, or ICT, played an instrumental role in the widely noted surge in productivity growth that took place in the late 1990s. The fundamental driving force of that surge was a sustained and rapid fall in the relative prices of those technologies. Although initial productivity figures for that period, the late 90s, were revised downward in subsequent data releases. Our best estimates now are that productivity did accelerate significantly from the mid-1990s, from a relatively stagnant pace of 1.5% uh, in the 20 years leading up to 1995, to about 2.6% in the second half of the 90s. Productivity has grown at surprisingly strong rates since then, 3.4% since the end of 2000, despite significantly lower rates of capital formation. Productivity in the first half of this decade thus must be mainly attributable to gains in what economists call total factor productivity. Uh, that is, uh, the achievement of output growth in excess of all input growth through reorganization of the use of those inputs. 
at the risk of oversimplification, one could say that firms increased productivity in the 1990s by providing workers with better technology, but in this decade by restructuring business processes to better exploit the technology they had. One interpretation of these two episodes is that IT, ICT investment outlays yields both an initial productivity gain, which uh, using our standard methods we attribute to uh, capital deepening, and then further productivity gains down the road as business processes are steadily optimized for the new infrastructure. These latter gains end up attributed to total factor productivity because you don't see the capital deepening at that later stage. One implication of this perspective on recent productivity trends is that the current expansion in business investment is laying a foundation for future total productivity growth, in, in particular in total factor productivity. And that provides at least some grounds for optimism that productivity growth might come in at, say, 2.5% or higher. Unfortunately, empirical evidence on this is limited. Um, identification is treacherous. Uh, even more treacherous than usual in this endeavor. And so, as always, forecasting productivity growth should be done with humility, given economists' notably poor track record in this area. Now, gains in labor productivity, whether due to capital deepening or to improved business processes, ultimately pass through to real incomes. As a result, total real personal income has grown recently, over 2% per year since the rebound in employment in mid-2003 despite significantly higher energy prices. If productivity continues at or above trend, as seems likely, then we should see healthy growth in real income next year, anticipation of which should continue to support consumption growth in 2006. Labor markets have recovered from the recession of 2001. Although employment was stagnant for a time following the downturn, hiring picked up in 2003. Of course, Hurricane Katrina disrupted labor markets by forcing uh, the displacement of close to a million people from the Gulf Coast region. That separated a, a substantial number of workers from their employers and damaged a substantial portion of the capital stock in the affected regions as well. As a result, U.S. employment growth was notably depressed in September and October, although quantitative estimates of the storm's effect are, of course, imprecise. Payroll expansion resumed in November, however, and one would expect most of the gap to be made up over the next several months as reconstruction efforts get underway. The overall outlook, therefore, is for a healthy expansion uh, in the next year. Real GDP should grow, in my view, at about 3.5%, give or take a little. Household spending should grow at about the same rate in real terms, maybe a touch higher. Business investment should expand substantially faster than overall output and residential investment should expand more slowly, perhaps even falling in real terms. And I expect employment to track the growth in the working age population. This is a fairly balanced picture, but naturally there's some uncertainty attached to it. Economic fundamentals could depart from their anticipated trajectories in any number of ways that could leave a mark on U.S. economic aggregates. For example, spot oil prices, or other commodity prices for that matter, could well turn out to be either above or below the paths embodied in futures markets prices. Many global commodity markets have been affected by the unanticipated surge in worldwide demand over the last several years. Those for which supply elasticities are low have experienced significant price run-ups. 
commodity price surprises in either direction could alter aggregate supply conditions and therefore either add or subtract from output growth in the coming year. On the demand side, there's some uncertainty regarding the rate at which housing activity is likely to cool in the coming year. Although I do not think that a sharp fall in housing investment is at all likely, a range of forecasts from flat to moderately declining seem pretty reasonable to me. And while continued growth in the share of output devoted to business investment seems highly probable, it's difficult to foresee with any certainty the scale of investment that businesses are going to find profitable to undertake. So spending growth in this category could well deviate from expectations as well. In contrast, household spending tends to be easier to forecast, both because economic theory and because empirical evidence indicate that uh, consumption growth is tied closely to real income growth over time. The range of likely outcomes for real consumption growth is correspondingly more narrow. Differences between how economic fundamentals are expected to unfold and how they actually unfold can have important implications for real interest rates and thus for monetary policy. As I've emphasized elsewhere, a real interest rate is a relative price, uh, the price of current resources relative to the future resources one either foregoes by borrowing or obtains by investing. Real interest rates need to respond to changes in the relative pressure on current versus future resources. Unpredicted movements in economic fundamentals to the extent that they affect the relative pressure on current and future resources thus will have implications for policy rates, even in situations in which inflation and inflation expectations are low and well contained. Core inflation has been low and relatively steady in the last several years. The inflation measure that's widely preferred on methodological grounds uh, the price index for core personal consumption expenditures has averaged 1.8% over, over the 12 months ending in October. I think that's true in November, too, according to this morning's report. That's within the 1% to 2% range that I and others have proposed as an announced target uh, for the Open Market Committee. Even before Katrina, overall inflation, including food and energy prices, was elevated due to the run-up in energy prices in the spring and the summer. Hurricanes Katrina and Rita severely disrupted energy production in the Gulf and led to sharp increases in refining margins and prices for gasoline and natural gas. U.S. natural gas production and petroleum refining are still down 5% since Katrina, and crude oil production is down 10%. Immediately following Hurricane Katrina, as the magnitude of the effects on Gulf Coast energy production became clear, Many observers came to fear the resulting sharp increase in energy prices might lead to a broader increase in inflation and perhaps even recessionary sources, uh, forces. These observers appeared to be reasoning by analogy to the 1970s, but I believe that analogy is seriously mistaken. Inflation expectations were unanchored in the 1970s. The credibility of the Federal Reserve was low, and people expected the Fed to allow energy price increases to feed through to overall inflation. The Fed often accommodated that expectation by preventing short-term real interest rates from rising. In fact, at times, we kept nominal interest rates from rising as rapidly as inflation was increasing, and thus we provided further monetary stimulus at exactly the wrong time. The Fed was then, to forced, was then forced to raise rates dramatically in order to bring inflation back down. And in the process, 
we induced economic contractions and exacerbated the real effects of the oil price shocks. Thus, the proper lesson in my mind from the 1970s is not that energy price shocks induce major recessions or cause widespread inflation. It is that monetary policy that reacts to energy price shocks by accommodating the rise in inflation can themselves induce recessions. Monetary policy should respond to energy shocks by remaining focused on price stability. That way the economy can respond to energy price shocks the way it should. The relative price of energy increases, but core inflation remains anchored. In the immediate aftermath of Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, monetary policymakers naturally have focused on the risk that the attendant energy price increases would pass through to an acceleration in core inflation. While the lack of an upsurge in core PCE inflation figures for September, October, and November is somewhat encouraging, I think it's too soon to declare that pass-through risk is entirely behind us. This assessment is consistent with the statement released by the Federal Open Market Committee following its meeting last Tuesday, which noted that, quote, elevated energy prices have the potential to add to inflation pressures, unquote. To my mind, any energy price pass-through to core inflation that is more than marginal and transitory would be unwelcome. Thus far, market participants appear to believe that core inflation will remain contained. Survey measures of expected inflation rose sharply in September when retail gasoline prices reached their peak, but have come back down since. Measures of expected inflation derived from the market prices of inflation-adjusted U.S. Treasury securities drifted up a bit this fall as well, but they too have returned to midsummer levels. To maintain credibility for price stability, it is essential that monetary policy should respond vigorously to any visible erosion in inflation expectations. Many of you may have noticed that in the statement released following the last FOMC meeting, the term accommodation was dropped, or in the words of my, one of my colleagues, given an honorable discharge. Many observers are taking this as a sign that the committee may be coming close to completing the current sequence of tightening moves that began in June of 2004. I discussed earlier that in an era of low and stable inflation, real interest rate movements will predominantly reflect the relative pressure on current versus future resources. Recessions in modern industrial economies are associated with transitory declines in economic activity. And since demand ultimately will recover, real interest rates need to fall in recessions to reflect the relative abundance of current relative to future resources. Thus, the FOMC engineered a reduction in real interest rates in 2001 that lasted until mid-2004, when a steady recovery in demand became evident. Since then, the economy has been, in, has been on a transitional trajectory toward a path characterized by sustained and balanced expansion with relatively full utilization of resources. Along this transition, real interest rates have been rising toward a range consistent with the sustained growth path to which the economy has been headed. It deserves emphasis, however, that sustained growth is not likely to be perfectly smooth and predictable. Unpredicted variations in economic fundamentals can and will affect economic conditions, even if they are not so large as to induce a recessionary break in growth. As I emphasized earlier, 
if those variations have implications for the relative pressure on current versus future resources, they will have implications for the real interest rate as well. The long expansions of the 1980s and 1990s were both cases in which interest rates fluctuated as the economy experienced sustained growth. Thus, whenever the current sequence of tightening moves reaches completion, short-term interest rates should not be expected to remain constant for an extended period of time. Instead, they will likely move from time to time during the expansion ahead. Policymakers will need to be alert for movements in economic fundamentals that shift the relative pressure on current versus future resources in ways that require changes in real interest rates, even if inflation pressures subside. Thank you.